Hello, welcome to Minding Your Mind, about your mind and how it works, about mental illness and about mental health. I'm joined by Professor Ian Hickey, as always, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the Uni of Sydney. What is your subconscious? To put it another way, what's happening in your mind apart from all the stuff you think is happening, apart from the thoughts and feelings you're aware of and that you're conscious of, what else is going on? For example, you're walking along a bush track toward a puddle and without any conscious effort or working out the distance or calculating or working out how many steps you are away from it, suddenly your legs are kind of adjusting, shortening your stride, throwing in a little half step or a shuffle so that when you get to the puddle, you put your foot down exactly at the edge and you can step over it. Now, how did that happen without you consciously having anything to do with it? What's instinct? For example, you think, I don't trust that guy. Why? You don't know. You just don't. Is it rational? Is it prejudice? You can't consciously articulate any of the data points that lead you to the conclusion that you don't trust that guy, but you just get the conclusion that you don't trust him. Could perhaps beneath your subconscious be analysing tone of voice, facial expression, body language, patterns of speech, whirring away like a computer, comparing them with your previous experience and spitting out a conclusion and all your conscious mind is gets is the conclusion that that guy isn't trustworthy, not the bits of information that led to it. So let's talk about the subconscious. What is it? A sophisticated computer helping us make better decisions, a mass of fears and desires driving our choices. Does instinct exist? And if so, what is it and should we trust it? Ian, hello. What is? I said, my conscious mind said, what, as all sorts of other things went on below it, what is the subconscious? Yes, James, what's going on? down there while yeah. you just took yourself through that intro. Yes, lots, lots of things were going on. You're actually being conscious. You're actually sitting up. You're actually breathing. You're actually moderating your blood pressure. You're actually thinking about – you're not actually thinking about it. Sorry, I take that back. You're not thinking about the fact that we're recording this in the morning and something has set your sleep-wake cycle and something else is going to make you go to sleep again tonight. All sorts of automatic processes are going on all the time minus – the conscious mind. So that kind of automatic thinking, you refer to a number of kind of things, things that are instinctual, things that are reflexive, if you like, things you have to react to very quickly. There's no time to be thinking about it. You have to have built-in systems that actually keep us physiologically intact. And then, as you were pointing out, most of us are aware of, reacting to the environment without thinking about it. Otherwise, we'd be crashing into stuff and having problems all the time. Mm. And then you're asking the sort of next level, okay, if there are all these automatic things, which there clearly are, because our bodies are doing things all the time, we're reacting to the environment all the time without thinking about it in advance, then is it motivated? Does it have reasons for doing this? Or are some just built in, instinctual? Are some based on prior experiences, you know, like made that mistake before, <laughs> no need to think about that, don't do it again? Yep. Or there are, of course... In this field I'm in, psychiatry, we made it all very complicated because we had this idea, courtesy of Dr. Freud, that there were really suspicious processes going on down there. Oh. <laughs> you know, deep conflictual things, complicated things that 
perhaps if we went down and started messing with them, we'd understand or we'd find reasons for them. Now, that's a particular elaboration, kind of interesting one, of actually something much more basic physiologically, what's built in to react. So I think the better definition of the subconscious is that kind of automatic thought processes, sorry, automatic brain processes without thought, (laughs) without conscious thought. You can think about them if you want to, as we are, and you can talk about them, but you don't actually get involved in them while they're happening. Can we go through a couple of the examples I mentioned? What's a simple one first? What's happening in the puddle example? How do you? How does your foot automatically end up at the edge of the puddle? You ever thought about walking up and down stairs? Don't well, that, don't right, think about right. it. <laughs> <laughs> don't think about it. Okay, because actually, puddle example and a stairs example, your body has to make all sorts of adjustments. In fact, if you go from walking to running, you have to change where the weight transfer is, otherwise you fall over or you fall backwards. You can't mm. actually. You've taken account of your own momentum if you run faster. You then have to change the stride pattern and the bounce pattern and the, and the muscle patterns. So these things which are become built in through experience become encoded in your cerebellum, which is a bit of part of your brain that controls balance and movement, back through your spinal cord and your muscles to do these things to regular patterns and to adjust, as you just said, depending on other input. In your case, the puddle example, the visual input. Oh, my God, that thing's not supposed to be there. I don't really want to land in that. What is the way to work out the distance, to feed that back, to adjust the stride, to go around it, etc.? Now, imagine if you sat down to think about all this before it happened. Well, <laughs> or- we've talked about this. Remember that episode we did about the yips when golfers start to think too much about the mechanics of putting and they can't do it anymore? If only Greg Norman and Tiger Woods never thought about anything. <laughs> Ball would have got in the hole every time. The moment you think about it, you're in big trouble. You're interfering with these automatic processes and you're interfering with what are the learnt best coping mechanisms, best, mm. best uh, mechanisms for dealing with these adjustments that we're making all the time. Uh, literally, walking up the stairs is quite different to walking down the stairs in terms of the way muscles and movement and mass has to be kind of coordinated. It takes a bit of learning when you're young. If you've ever seen kids, there's a good reason to put those rails over stairs, you know, go tumbling down you know, until you work out the motor patterns, which are then encoded in the central nervous system as to how you do those things. So these adjustments are being made all the time between complicated, and your computer example in this case is a good one. There's things going on in the background between the inputs that are coming in from the visual environment, from the physical environment, and the adjustments, the subtle adjustments that then need to be made in everything that we actually do. And that scanning of the environment through all of our senses is happening all the time and feeding in and, and making adjustments in various ways. Mm. Now, of course, some of it needs to signal stuff. You smell smoke. You've got to do something. You know, yeah. if you're driving a car and something suddenly appears out of the side of the visual field, I mean, in fact, there are reflexes, something suddenly appears in your eye, you, you know, something scary. You've got to actually react long before you have time to think about reacting, mm. <laughs> in which case you'll have already crashed if you have to stop and think. So it is a pretty smart system, leaving the rest of us, the conscious mind, to chat <laughs> while the rest yeah. of the real work do other stuff. what it's doing yes yeah protecting us and actually making us able to move around hopefully in a safe and productive way the physical environment in which we live and i'm guessing that the more familiar you are with the task the less of your conscious mind you need so i'm teaching uh one of my daughters to drive at the moment and i'm i, I guess that she needs more of her conscious mind uh, you know, a greater percentage of it to, to focus on driving than I do because I've been doing it for so long. Yes, so driving is a very good example. It's a scary thing to get in that big 
I've, I've noticed recently. Thing. <laughs> and they go out there and everyone else has got a big, large thing and they're not all in control of that big, large thing and it's all at speed. It's very risky. You stop and think about driving and traffic. It's a really risky thing. Okay, and everyone has to do it properly, otherwise stuff goes badly. But, of course, most of us, having learnt to do it and then learnt to relax in the situation, don't think about it too much. And the automatic things you need to do in adjusting the steering wheel and the braking and speeding become automatic. So there's lots of examples where acquiring skills requires conscious effort in the first place to kind of work out what the hell is this thing, how do you do it in some ways, what are the contingencies, but then through experience to encode and stop thinking about it. In fact, as a driver, it's very important to be able to relax yeah. You know, and not be hypervigilant, not be constantly braking, accelerating, not be constantly reacting to every single thing that is happening to you know, make the passenger very car sick in the process if you do, you know, to create a smooth driving experience. Yes, that's a very good example. What if about you, the-, the, the learning? Learning is concentrating and then actually having hopefully to be able to stop. For most, and particularly for motor things, whether it's playing a musical instrument, typing on a keyboard, mm. doing many things, you'd know, you don't want to think about it. If you think about it, you'll make a mess of it. Yeah, so your subconscious is doing the work. What, this is a slightly more complex ex- example, and I think we've probably all had this feeling of thinking, I just don't trust that person, or, or perhaps even thinking, I, I think that, might, that person might be depressed, or coming to some conclusion about a person but not really knowing how you get there. And, and you know, you're talking to someone, you just think there's something about this person I don't quite trust or like, but you can't actually articulate it. But I'm guessing that your subconscious is doing the work for you and just spitting out the conclusion. Yes. We had artificial intelligence before there was AI. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, have a, we have a bank of familiar images, familiar tones, familiar sounds, and particularly for human faces, particularly for human voice, and for things that we are familiar with and have previously trusted, and things that are very foreign to us and are very different, which we intrinsically are fearful of. So this has been studied a lot in humans and across species, etc. the extent to which uh, all sorts of behaviours imply you trust people, that sound and look a lot like you and you're instantly fearful or just suspicious, you know, standoffish with things that are unfamiliar. Now, you can see the kind of evolutionary point in that, you know, hmm. that, that there may be dangers and particularly not just in, in sort of skin colour and hair colour and physical appearance but increasingly in other subtle, more subtle things, facial cues, particularly facial cues and then tone of voice and other sets of things. So, yeah, we've got built-in mechanisms <laughs> – and then but, they're but, elaborated by experience as to what we trust and what we don't. But which can you, if you get a conclusion from talking to someone, you just this feeling that you shouldn't trust them, how do you work out how much of the conclusion is reliable and based on rational stuff and how much of it is unconscious bias? Well, see, thoughtful people like you, James, stop and ask the question. Many others don't. <laughs> they just go, oh, it's instinct. Can't trust him. You go, right. Hang on a second, like why? Because <laughs> he sounds different. Because he's got an accent. Because he's got a different skin colour. You're just unfamiliar with that particular thing. So you just don't trust it. So that's it. Like that's the end of the game. I don't trust anything that isn't like me. As distinct from, it's understandable that things you're unfamiliar with that are foreign to you, they're outside your realm of experience. Then the first instance, you're mm. going to be reserved because mm. you don't get it. 
You don't know what the contingencies are. You don't know what those people are going to do next or that person's going to do next. So I think the second bit of what you said is really important. The first bit is to understand that there are instinctual biases. There are cognitive biases. So some are instinctual. Some of them built on experience. You know, very bad experience with people like that before. You know, people have looked like that before, or people have spoken like that before. And 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 can that be even really subtle things? Like, you know, I mean, quite an obvious one is someone not making eye contact, and that might make you suspicious. But just really subtle, as you said, facial expressions, body language that. You know, I have no idea, I haven't studied it, any correlation between particular spatial, facial expressions or body language and trustworthiness, but maybe my subconscious knows from all the thousands of people I've met in my, in my life. Yes, so both. People have studied the shape of faces, the nature of facial expressions, things that people intrinsically trust, <laughs> perhaps they shouldn't, make marvellous salesmen, right. and others that people intrinsically don't trust, you know. However, however, that then is elaborated very much by experience, which is why uh, diversity and other things matter. You know, if you want people to actually develop a more rational view of the world, they need to have lots of different experiences. They need to have spent time with lots of different people. They need to come to understand. We do all speak with accents, you know. <laughs> it isn't just people different to us who have an accent. We all have accents. We all have ways. We all have facial expressions. This is that some... We're very familiar through our own family, through our own clan, through our own experiences. We're very familiar with, and others we're not, and that takes some uh, particular experience. Particularly if you haven't had those experiences in childhood or you haven't had close relationships, trusting relationships with people who have those characteristics. Mm. So they are often very subtle. And these are, these are things that are manipulated all the time in advertising and uh, you know, sales and in politics and in other areas to play on these kind of intrinsic but then often elaborated by the range of experiences that people have had. Here's another example. When I, when I worked on radio, whenever I interviewed someone, I, I'd want to get to the interesting stuff. So often below, you know, they might be doing four radio interviews that day and, and beneath all that to something really interesting. And, of course, people when they're being interviewed don't really want to do that. They want to come in and tell you about their, their book or their movie or whatever. And – there seemed to be a, like this calculation that my mind was making, okay, I can push this a little bit further. If I go direct here, I think they'll block me, but maybe I can come in around the side. But a lot of it seemed to be subconscious, and I guess a lot of people would feel that over the course of a job, they're building up skills and strategies to do their job a little bit better, but they almost don't know how. Very interesting because the brain builds shortcuts all the time. <laughs> I don't want to say the brain's lazy, but it doesn't want to waste energy and time on stuff that yeah. it doesn't have to. Yeah. So actually it creates, if you like, uh, mental concepts and mental images, which are shortcuts right? based on experience. The quickest way to get here is not to ask him about his book. <laughs> you know, yeah. The quickest way to get there is be, I know quicker ways. So those things become more automatic. They become more skilled. People – know how to do those things. And you don't then have to think about it. Your example is a very good one. You're a very skilled interviewer, a very experienced interviewer. You've done it a thousand times, right? You don't have to think about how am I going to conduct an interview? You know, how, how am I going to make it more interesting? Because you've already done it lots. So the brain is constantly taking those kinds of things, creating shortcuts, creating easy ways, you know, to do it and, and retreating to those because they require less energy, less effort. And at the end of the day, they are, more efficient. So the efficiency kind of principles of uh, 
the brain prefers the shortest way home, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with the least effort. Hey, and, and these are these are processes that are kind of really, if you think about it, the amount of information that we hold about our lives, about what we do, and, and which we're aware of, and that where we're saying here today is there's this huge amount of stuff in the background going on you're unaware of that has to do all the time to keep you breathing, heart beating, standing up, not falling over, mm. being well. A huge amount of stuff to be done. You can't be wasting a lot of time and effort <laughs> on other so stuff. I, I would imagine that would be pretty applicable with psychiatry too. You know, if if you've if you've you're on your six hundred and eighty second patient, you kind of get these subconscious. I think I should go there, or I should stay away from that. Yes. Yeah, so experience in any job. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, as we may have discussed before, people often think that I'm listening to them when they're talking. <laughs> I'm not. You know, but I am really interested in their facial expression, in their tone, in how they say it, in particular sets of things. One of the problems in our area is become people think they can do it by sort of cookbook, by checklist. You can ask a thousand questions, and if you put the thousand questions together, you'll get the answer. You can actually, yeah. waste of time. You miss the point because you miss the critical kind of bit. So, in all experienced sort of professions and in other areas, uh, yeah, the salient features, the most important bits, the bits that get you to the answer, get prioritised in various ways. And people say, oh, it's a bit hard to learn. You go, yeah, well, it takes 30 years of experience yeah. to actually kind of do that kind of stuff. Yes, it does take a long time um, to do it because you are essentially training to do it in particular ways. And, and then knowing how to – and you see any skilled kind of tradesman, you see any skilled kind of craftsman, you think, how the hell do they do that? <laughs> You know, see people working with their hands in particular kinds of way. How the hell do they do that? Mm. You know, and they well, don't even seem about it. to be. Yeah, they don't <laughs> even seem to be trying. No, nah, they're having a chat and you know, yeah. chatting around the rug and then listening to some music and doing stuff and doing incredibly complicated things. Yeah, without the, in fact, often when we ask people to stop and explain how they did it, Can't. go dunno, like <laughs> just like just been doing it, <laughs> tying your shoelaces or putting on a tie. Yeah. So these automatic motor things are a particularly good example of that. Yeah, yeah. So you can't tell people, but you can show them. Okay, what about instinct? I'm guessing there's two types of instinct. There's the instinct that's kind of you're born with, like cry when you're hungry or cry when you need something. But there's also instinct that might be just a we, what we call instinct might be these subconscious conclusions we come to about people and other things. Yes, so uh, instinctual fear is probably the easiest to understand, you know, built in to be scared of heights, built in to be scared of spiders, built in to be scared of snakes. You know, the stuff that in, in humans is very instinctual. Mm. It's not, not normal to go jumping off buildings. It is not normal to pick up and play with snakes and stuff. So, that, you know, these things are built in. So some of the things have become uh, built into our development and into our relationship um, with the environment. Fearfulness of that which is different in the interpersonal environment, things we're unfamiliar with, and, and it happens. Your heart rate goes up, your breathing rate goes up, you start to sweat. There's a whole lot of physiological responses to it. You know? You're not actually being irrational. <laughs> You're actually being instinctual. Mm. Now, you might have to think about it, whether that's a great idea. Is it entirely justified? But I think people often feel bad about it as distinct from saying, no, no, these are some built-in things. And they've been built in and they fit the human condition to have maximised survival in, in things that would have otherwise posed threat. Um, the instinctual things on the positive side 
is to form close bonds with people. So we have facial expressions, we have physiological systems, the release of oxytocin when you're breastfeeding, all sorts of other things that reinforce the fact of, of encouraging closeness, in fact, with mm. uh, others. There's some other really weird things yeah. built into immune systems and sense of smell, and you see this across species, about who to mate with and who oh, not yeah. to mate with. Yeah, Like what? Well, people think about this kind of pheromones type idea, you know, that there's chemical kind of signalling systems, and there are smells and other attributes that actually keep people who are very genetically similar apart and make it more likely, let's see this in humans and across species, they're more likely to mate with people who are actually somewhat different genetically. Uh, and it's communicated in various sorts of ways now when through you say, things like smell and uh, also other characteristics. When you say different genetically, what does that mean? It's not really good to mate with your brother or your sister or your mum. No. Okay? You want to actually mate actually out of those which you are very genetically close to. But is it as simple as that or, or does it go further? Like you rate, you know, you should mate, try and mate with someone from a different ethnicity. Is Great that question, instinct? because here, here genetics runs into the other problem, okay? So the, the, trusting, kind of, mm. the trusting kind of thing and those is stay close, people that are a lot alike. And, in fact, we're very attracted to people who are – and it's been well studied again. We are very much more attracted to people who are physically like us, a bit of a, bit of a worrying set of characteristics for some of us, you know, who, uh, who are familiar to us. And we're not so easy. But from a genetic point of view, diversity is great. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you were, you were just simply playing the genetics game – you'd go for greater diversity and hence there's a kind of tension here between the two, sort of a safety one, which encourages sort of closeness to those who are most like you, and a genetic one, which is actually really good <laughs> to be much more diverse. What else do people – I'm just trying to think what else people put down to instinct. I just had an instinct about it. Look, it wasn't the smartest job for me to take on paper, but I had an instinct. Is that, that's not really instinct, is it? That's a, What is that? Hunch. Well, I mean, people, in a sense, say this, they've developed a sense of something, okay? And you've named one, trust, mistrust. Yeah. And confidence, not. That if you go the other way around, sometimes our rationality isn't always entirely sensical, you know? Yeah, definitely. You know, people often use rational thinking to come to really bad decisions, you know? And the philosophers and others say they, and others would say the sort of cognitive people, they started with the wrong assumptions. And from the wrong assumptions, they built up a rational argument. So people do have this kind of sense of that's not right. That's not, there's not right. It might sound right. And I can see the logic of it, but it's intrinsically not right. Now, I think often the logic overrides one of these more basic, if you like, basic instincts, basic kind of ideas, basic kind of hunches. You know, we'll all be fine to trust everybody. Sounds rational. All humans are trustworthy. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know, certain kinds of people, certain I, and I feel more familiar in certain kinds of environments than others in a particular kinds of ways. Yeah. You know, so, well, people say, so, you know, what do you got to fear? What do you got to fear about going in there? What do you got to fear about doing this? <laughs> well, actually, quite a lot. <laughs> and I feel more comfortable. I feel more confident in some other area in a particular mm. way. So I think these things where people have that sense or that hunch based on, again, their own sense of characteristics, their own sort of uh, understanding of the way that they react in the world. And people are often trying to talk them into something else, rationally, yeah. logically. And they're going, nah, nah, don't really. Particularly yeah. someone you don't really trust is trying to talk you into it. <laughs> you know? So you, you should trust, you should usually trust that feeling or at least investigate it. Investigate, yeah. Investigate what the reservation 
is about. Now, some of it, uh, that instinctual stuff, isn't very helpful because it's avoidant. You know, yeah. to some degree, it's fearful. To some degree, hmm. it can it can therefore inhibit a certain kind of expression. Of so, but it, it, that very protective kind of aspect, um, you know, uh, is there for a good reason. But it can be an overdrive. You know, sometimes it needs to be confronted, or actually, you do need to sit down and analyze, take account of what it's really about. What is interesting is when a deep-seated instinct comes up against rationality. I'm thinking of an example like abseiling, where you might have uh, two ropes on you, you know how safe they are, you know that even if one thing fails, you're still safe because there's a fail-safe. Or even imagine a pedestrian bridge, a thin pedestrian bridge over a deep, deep canyon. So you know it's safe. You're making me anxious talking about it, James. (laughs) You know, thousands of people go over it, you know, every week. And and so rationally, you know, it's safe. Your instinct says it's dangerous. They're fighting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they are. And they should. they should. They should. You should stop before you go over that very thin bridge. In fact, I'd stop and watch 10 people go over first myself before I was convinced. Well, so you've <laughs> you seen know? 100 people go over. Yeah, yeah, but... You are running into – you're making a very important point. You're running into something where the intrinsic system is going, no way. Humans do not walk across that stuff. Humans do not jump out of aeroplanes. Humans do not abseil down the side of buildings. We, are not, we, we watch other animals do that sort of stuff. We are not built for it. So the built-in sensibility is you've got to be joking. Now, the fact we've made systems to do all this and we have engineered things to do it, you are running into this fundamental – uh, and it's a very good example, James, because people don't like to think so, right? They like to think, oh, yeah. you know, well, of course I'm a rational person. And what is there to, yeah. what is there to fear? People hand me snakes all the time. And I go, no way. <laughs> well, what's there to fear time? with a snake? I go, lots, <laughs> you know, lots. Oh, you know, but just play with the snake. Just touch the snake. Just play with the snake. You know, blah, blah, blah. Go, Hang on. Who I probably these can. people that are continually holding, handing you snakes? Haven't you? But, oh, look. There are people who love reptiles and there are people who love very, you know, arachnoids and, you know, Mm. quietly, they're the unusual ones, okay? (laughs) The rest of us who are going, I don't know. Well, no, they have... They have... Their rationality has triumphed over their instincts. No, their their arousal in the first place is lower, right? So here we go into individual differences. Some people are uh, less aroused, less anxious in the face of these obvious kind of things. So it's been... I would suggest by experience, often, often having done this from a very young age, you know, the Steve Irwin kind of, you know, kind of, you know, just do anything, play with anything, mm. shark, no problem, snake, crocodile, jump in. You know, if you have a lot of early exposure to that and you've overcome the intrinsic kind of stuff, it's kind of yeah. easier. But also, typically, people with lower levels of arousal. Now, it's harder if you have much higher levels of arousal, intrinsic fear of these things, as people do with intrinsic symbol phobias, so called. They're called simple phobias. I think we're very harsh as psychiatrists because we've got names for all these things, as if there's something unusual about being terrified by snakes and spiders and heights and stuff. You know, actually, there's nothing unusual about it at all. Thank God some of our ancestors were. That's why we're still here. They didn't go and do all this stuff. Um, so, but, but increasingly, of course, you can learn and you can uh, then overcome those things by graded exposure, by simple engagement, and as long as it is safe and the thing doesn't bite you, <laughs> doesn't kill you you know you can learn to enjoy apparently apparently people can enjoy jumping out of airplanes and scaling down the side of buildings and 
doing stuff. Yeah. They can enjoy the rush. They can enjoy the adrenaline that goes with it. Yeah, Man, it's interesting about that. They want the adrenaline. You know, actually, it's interesting. They, they say they're not afraid, but they enjoy the well, – what are you doing it for? Oh, the rush. Okay, what's that? Oh, that's my heartbeat. That's really us, you know, the thrill. So, in a sense, a, re, a repackaging of what I'm going to call fear has been repackaged as the thrill because <laughs> – the, the, the contingency yeah. doesn't result in death or destruction. They've done it before. You can learn. So my conclusion from all this, one of them is that if you are talking to someone and you get a message from your subconscious, i.e. this is a good person or this is a person you shouldn't trust, you should pay it heed, investigate it, uh, but also have a look at how similar or different that person is to you and the more different they are from you, ethnicity, gender, age, the more likely it is there's a bias component as opposed from a rational computer data analysis component. Yeah, I think you're raising a really important point, which is most of us are unaware of our intrinsic cognitive biases, <laughs> right? Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah, well, is it really? Yeah, it is. You go, hang on a sec. We have built up biases, some based on these instinctual things we've been talking about, some based on uh, experience over time in particular ways that aren't really justified in the specific situation that you're in, but they're actually strongly influencing your behaviour in the specific situation that you're in. Many yes. people don't do what you just suggested, James. They don't, they don't ever stop. No, well, I probably don't do it. <laughs> well, it's interesting time. when you ask yourself those kind of questions, you're running this in particular thing, you know, is this – is the conclusion I've come to in my consequent behaviour justified or am I actually operating under some particular bias that I'm relatively unaware of? Ian, what about different age groups, instinct, the subconscious, babies we've talked a bit about, as you go through adolescence, become an adult, gain more experience, maybe the subconscious has got more to go on, you can trust it more as you get older? do you think or what do you think the second bit's true experience matters so the yeah. more and more experiences you've had you build up a bank of stuff so you can constantly check in without checking in you can do matching your brain can match stuff very quickly with past experience and on the base of past experiences make predictions about what is likely to happen yeah not have to think about it much so yeah a lot of these things become more automatic through experience and in that sense quite accurate too good reason to think those things based on experiences. The other way around, of course, with children and then with teenagers, the instinctual bit, what seems to be right, so in a sense, babies are running on total instinct, what tastes good, what smells good, what feels good, what's soft to touch, great, let's have more of that. You know, those things that are rewarded in that particular kind of way and, and that uh, babies are drawn towards food, comfort, shelter, warmth, all good stuff. Teenagers, Interesting, challenging period, you know, because mm. the brain development, that said, said, you know, get out and see what the world's like. Go out and see what the other stuff's kind of like. So there's a, an excitement and a novelty kind of aspect drawing towards. And then things like, you know, interesting things, sex, you know, other stuff, other powerful drives, as Dr. Freud might have referred to them, come into play, you know, that actually drive people towards certain sets of behaviours. Hard to say where that's coming from, but that person's very attractive. I'd like to spend time with them. You know, <laughs> parents have often remarked, what made him think that person was attractive? What made her think <laughs> he was attractive? You know, what were they thinking yeah. in that particular sense? So those kind of things become more obvious 
and and then underpin those kind of behaviours in particular kind of ways, and we you know which aren't actually explained in a kind of rational kind of way. In fact, attractiveness, sexual attraction, or a lot of other issues that come into play aren't easily explained, but they are built in and mm. have have contributing factors that are likely to have had evolutionary advantages. Why am I – I'm going back a bit now – why am I attracted to that girl but my friend's attracted to that other girl? And if, you know, maybe we grew up in the same – city and went to the same school and are broadly similar. But when I tell him who I'm attracted to, he thinks, what? And vice versa. So there is a phenomenon in genetics called assortative mating. And this is like for like. Now, like for like is not just physical uh, in the sort of sense it looks like you, smells like you, behaves like you. It is also um, temperamental, which is kind of really interesting, not just cultural. Mm. I mean, we often think it's about cultural terms. Oh, yeah, well, we went to the same school, you all got the same religion, your parents look the same, you know, that kind of explains it. But actually, temperamental kind of characteristics are even more interesting. And in fact, a lot of assortative mating is temperamental. People who've got very similar uh, emotional characteristics are actually attracted to each other as well. Again, people don't often think about that, you know, but it is the emotional responsiveness of the other, which they find quite attractive. Yeah, that person seems to respond to the world and be in the world in a similar way to me. That's kind of nice in particular ways. So, so we're not as shallow as we might have thought. I mean, that, that's kind of a, quite a sophisticated thing. It is. It is kind of interesting, yes. I don't know if we are as shallow. I think in the modern age, in the Instagram age, we probably are as shallow as we thought. Or people think we're as shallow as we thought. It seems to kind of work. But, but yeah, actually... Humans rely on close bonds and, and small family groups to survive, you know, so it kind of makes sense that actually mm. you've got to have people you can actually live with, you've got to have characteristics with, you've got to be able to share emotional responsiveness because the point here, emotional responsiveness is very subconscious. Why I react? Why do I react more? Why am I more sensitive than others? Why am I more drawn to that kind of tone of voice than others? These kind of emotional tone things are not so obvious in various ways. They're certainly not obvious in visualisation, in photos, in you know, Instagram-type worlds mm. as to how a person is emotionally responding to different situations and what we find intrinsically comforting about people who have similar characteristics and what we find very challenging and hard to live with uh, about those who have very different sets of characteristics. Very interesting. Well, that is your subconscious if you've got any questions or comments about it or anything else to do with our podcast or want to suggest further topics, do send us an email at mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com. That's mindingyourmind, numeral2 at gmail.com. And Minding Your Mind is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help is available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Just Google them, obviously. You can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Talk to you next time.